It's on page 1044 in your pew Bibles. We're reading verses 39 to 46. Uh, Children here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to Children's Church if they would like. And a reminder to those of you who are members of the church that this Tuesday at 7.30 is our annual business meeting. At our annual meeting, we elect our officers and leaders for the coming year. We approve the budget. Uh, And all that is out on the open uh, on the table in the open. If you uh, maybe are from a different church background, one of the things we do in a Baptist church is the way we make decisions about the big issues in our church is congregationally, including how we're going to uh, use the money. And all that is an open book for people to see. So we hope that you'll come uh, Tuesday night at 7.30. If you're a member, we expect you to be there. If you're not a member, you are welcome to come and just observe how, how we do things uh, here in a Baptist tradition, and it's really a, a great thing. It's a time of just it's just encouraging to be in a meeting because you you hear about all the things God is doing in the church, and we come together to be the body and to govern ourselves the way we believe is laid out in the scriptures. So that's Tuesday at 7:30. All right, Luke chapter 22, progressing in the story of Jesus' passion, we come now to the Garden of Gethsemane, and let's start reading at verse 39. Let me read the text. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Many of us uh, were disheartened, saddened by uh, the news we heard last fall when we heard that uh, Pastor Ted Haggart had to step down from his church. Uh, Ted Haggart started a a church in Colorado, and it grew from just a little Bible study to a church of 14,000 people. Uh, He was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals for a number of years. And so it was one of those Christian leaders and and voices of the evangelical church. And then this last fall, he had to step down because of a profound moral failure in his life. And, you know, it's it's those stories that just dishearten you as a Christian. They're disillusioning for seekers. And they are confirming evidence for skeptics and for atheists who say, Ah, I knew it. It's all a bunch of hypocrites anyway. And, you know, we ask, why does this happen? How do you get there? Um, But here's the thing you have to understand, and and this is important, that every Christian, every Christian faces a lifelong, relentless battle against temptation. Let me say that again. Every Christian, every Christian, no matter who you are, faces a lifelong, relentless battle against temptation. When uh, Ted resigned in his resignation letter that was read to the church, he said this, and let me just quote a sentence from it. He said, There's a part of my life 
that is so repulsive and dark that I have been warring against it for all of my adult life. And you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that there are those parts of our lives that we have been battling against, that we have these things in our life. And in each of us, it's different. But if we're honest, we know that that war against temptation is constant and it's going to continue on through our Christian lives no matter how long we walk with the Lord. Those temptations are going to be there. <clears throat> and that's important to understand because I think if we don't get that, then we're going to be really discouraged. When the temptations come, we're going to say, what's wrong with me? Why is this happening to me? And then when we fall into temptation, because you know, there's a difference between being tempted, which is not a sin, and obeying the temptation, which is the sin. Sin is sin, temptation is not. But, but if we don't understand that that's the dynamic and that it's a relentless, lifelong battle, we're going to become discouraged. You know, as a pastor, I've talked to new Christians. And they'll say, oh, Pastor, I thought I was a Christian, but then I, I go home and I'm frustrated and I yell at my spouse when I shouldn't and my kids, I'm gruff with them. And sometimes I even swear. And I, th- I thought I was a Christian. And, and so we repent again and we, we ask Jesus into our hearts again. Lord, you know, and, and so we keep, you know, I've asked Jesus into my heart like 20 times now, just making sure that I'm really a Christian. And I was baptized, but I don't think it took, so I've been baptized another time. And, you know. I've got to figure out how to do this. And we're so confused because we thought, well, I thought when I became a Christian, the temptations were done and the victory was, was won. Um, and even people who have been Christians for many, many years go through this battle. You know, you say, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've been a Christian for 30 years. <clears throat> I've been a deacon. I've led a Bible study. I've led people to the Lord through evangelism. I've taught a Sunday school class. And I just said, What? I just did, you know, you fill in the blanks. And we say, oh, what's wrong with me? I, mean, just, I, I must be defective in my Christian life. I mean, everyone else doesn't seem to have this problem, but it's, it's just me. And we forget that this battle against temptation is lifelong, it's relentless, and it's going to continue as long as we're here in, in this life, in this world. And, you know, as I was writing this sermon, I was particularly burdened this week just to be praying for uh, Christians who, for whom sin and temptation is not just a battle, but for some, in some cases it's become a habitual problem, that they've fallen into a rut of sin. You know, we call it addiction. But, but carrying around drug or alcohol addiction or pornography or gambling or shopping or whatever it is. And I just want you to know I've been praying for you this week because I know that is... That is such a burden, uh, as I've talked to people, to carry that around. Because on the outside, they try to be like, oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm great, we're all great Christians, it's all happy, smiley, wonderful. But on the inside, there's this, this deep brokenness and pattern of sin, and they, they think, I can never escape, I'm trapped in this. <clears throat> because we all face a lifelong, relentless battle against temptation to sin. It just goes with the territory of being a Christian. And, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves and we were to really think about our lives, I bet all of us in just a few moments of honesty could quickly tick off the two, three, four sins or temptations to which we find we are particularly prone. Uh, you know, Satan can come at us all different ways, but there are just some temptations that, that are particularly effective in our lives, it seems. It's like a castle, and there's a low spot in the castle. It's the obvious place for the enemy to make his assault. And we all have that low spot somewhere in the castle, and we know where it is. And maybe for you it is anger. Maybe you just have a temper, and you find you can go from zero to 60 in terms of anger so quickly, and you get frustrated, and that's the place where you seem to fall very often in your Christian life. 
Or maybe for you, it's um, bitterness and unforgiveness. Maybe you just you have a list of people who've wronged you, and it's long and it goes way back, and it never gets shorter. <laughs> and people, it, get, it always grows, but it never shortens. And so you have a hard time obeying the Lord's command to forgive. He's commanded us to forgive. This is not forgiveness is not an optional discipline for Christians. He forgave us; we must forgive. But sometimes that's really hard, and some of us just are grudge keepers. Um, for some of us, it's vanity. Uh, for some of us, it's materialism. We're, we're focused on our appearance and our outward looks and what people think of us. Uh, sometimes it's lust. Sometimes it's greed. Uh, maybe your pet sin is um, fear. You get into situations that are scary and, and you don't trust God and you're filled with doubt and you don't know how to continue to lean on God. Maybe it's lying. Maybe you just have a hard time telling the straight story. And you either leave a little out or add a little in, depending on who you're talking to and what you think it is they need to hear in a particular situation. You know, the Puritans had a name for these. Uh, the Puritans called them bosom sins because they were the sins that are particularly close to our hearts, toward which we found ourselves particularly uh, susceptible for temptation. <clears throat> and so we have to understand that this is the battle we face. But the real question I want to ask this morning, and this is the important thing, is it possible as a Christian to have progressive victory over temptation? Can we resist, or is it just is it hopeless? Can we never overcome these things? Are we always destined to just bumble along? You know, it says in First Peter, God says, "Be holy, because I am holy." And so the question is, uh, can I actually obey that command to some degree? Is it possible to grow progressively in holiness? I do not believe in the doctrine of entire sanctification. I don't think that in this life anyone will ever be completely holy. But, but does that mean, therefore, we shouldn't strive for it? That we shouldn't try to obey the Lord's command and seek progressive holiness in our life? And is it possible to get there? And that's why this today's text is all about. Jesus is in the crucible of temptation. And here in this story in Gethsemane, He's not only telling us, but He also demonstrates for us how it is that we can resist temptation. Because there is a way as a Christian to grow. There is power in the Lord to resist temptation. And the key is it's found through prayer. It's found through prayer. Let's look back at our story. Verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and His disciples followed Him. And on reaching the place, He said to them, here's the command, Pray so that you will not fall into temptation. We have to pray. <clears throat> In fact, let me do this. I'm going to read the story. I'll speed read it. Okay? And I just want you to follow along. And every time either pray or prayer is mentioned, I want you to count. Let's just see how many times this word appears in the story. All right, start at verse 40. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What's the count? Five. 
That's, that's a lot in a few short verses. All right, one of the basic principles, one of the ABCs of biblical interpretation is if a word or phrase is repeated a lot, that's probably the point. <laughs> so, I, I need simple instructions like that for how to interpret. How do I interpret the Bible? How do I understand it? That's a, a basic one. Look for re- repetition. And if something's repeated in the Bible, that's typically the point. Uh, and not only is the word prayer here five times, notice the posture of prayer. He kneels down. And not only that, but we have his prayer. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And so the whole point of this text is prayer. Prayer is the way that we resist temptation. In fact, the command is repeated at the beginning and end of the story. In uh, biblical studies, we call that an inclusio. It's just kind of a fancy word for bookends. If, if something is at the beginning and something at the end of a story, it's, it's the emphasis of the story. It's what you're supposed to go away with. So the inclusio is, in verse 40, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And it comes again at the end. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. <clears throat> so for people who are kind of slow like I am, <laughs> I get it. Oh, I'm supposed to pray. The way to meet relentless temptation is with relentless prayer. We push back and we fight back against temptation with relentless prayer and and seeking God. This is a spiritual war, and so we need spiritual weapons, which is what prayer is. Um, And that's why prayer is so important. Because, see, through prayer, what we're doing is we're calling upon the power of God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is, is when you, real prayer, is when you sit down and you say, God, I can't, you can, I need your help, I don't know how to figure this out, I don't know how to, to fight back against this temptation, I'm worried about this is going to happen today, I don't know how I'm going to respond, or whatever it is. And so you pray and you're saying, God, help me. Uh, prayer is, is like the soldier in the foxhole, and he's pinned down, his unit is pinned down, and the enemy's on all sides, and they can't break out. So he says, get on the phone. And call in some air support. <laughs> and so he gets on the phone and we need air support here. And the air support comes in and that air support pushes back the enemy so that the soldiers who couldn't have broken out can now be free. And prayer is how we call in God's air support. We say, Lord, there's a temptation here that I'm facing and I need you to help me. That's why prayer is so important. Uh, you know, there's this, uh, this old saying from some of the old timers in our church that founded the church. Uh, some of the original founders, and they had this old saying that I learned from them. It's a great saying. It goes like this. A little prayer, a little power. More prayer, more power. Much prayer, much power. And so that's a great saying. Put that on your fridge. We need to keep praying if we want victory over temptation. Because here's the thing. Temptation is so strong, you can't fight it yourself. If self-help worked, well, then we wouldn't need to pray. But it doesn't, um, because temptation comes at us from all angles. It's all around us. Uh, Think about the sources of temptation. Why are we tempted? How are we tempted? Well, I thought of at least three ways. We're tempted internally. We're tempted by our own desires. You know, people say the devil made me do it. I don't need the devil to make me do it. I do it just fine, thank you, by myself. Uh, I really don't need his assistance. It's, you know, fine if he wants to help, but I'm great with this sinning thing. I do it just naturally. Uh, and so we, we realize that there's a battle coming from within us. It's inside of our souls. It's in our very natures. The Bible calls this the flesh. And when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not talking about your skin. It's talking about that sinful orientation, the bent toward selfishness that's within all of us. 
fact, it says in the book of James, uh, this famous passage, let me just read it to you. The book of James chapter 1, where he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. Here we go. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And so it's, it's ourselves. We're our worst enemies. But it's not just ourselves. This is the problem. It's also the world around us that constantly comes at us with messages to disobey Christ. You know, it's your friends at school saying, Hey, the parents are gone this weekend and they think I'm staying over here, but actually we're going to go back to my house. And there's a big party and you ought to come. And you know exactly what's going to happen at that party. You already know what's going to happen there. And it is that allure. It's, it's the person in the office who keeps hitting on you. It's uh, the television that sends messages that says, you know, you need to be focused on your appearance, you need to be focused on clothing and your body, and it's all about the outward. But the Bible says God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so we're not told to look at our souls, we're told to look at our appearance. Or maybe, you know, it's the Internet, it's just all around us. On the Internet, it is absolutely infected with the pandemic of pornography. It's in pop-up ads. It's everywhere. It's just, it's rife with that. It's a disaster. <clears throat> it's, I mean, think about it. When's the last time this week? Think about this last week. How many times this last week did your environment send you the message, you need to be following Jesus more closely? <laughs> When's the last time you got the message from television, it's important to be holy? When, when have you heard that? I, I don't hear it all week. I hear just the opposite message. So my own sinful desires are being reinforced and enticed by the world around me. And over it all, I guess you say over or around or somehow penetrating it all, is the third source of temptation, which of course is the evil one. That this is a spiritual war. We have a spiritual enemy who uses all of those things against us. Uh, in fact, chapter 22 of Luke, we've been reading it and studying it. This is the chapter where Satan launches his great offensive against the disciples. It starts in chapter two, verse three. Chapter twenty-two, verse three. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard, and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And then last week we saw Satan's offensive in verse thirty-one. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So Jesus pushes back with prayer. And so Satan makes his run at, uh, at um, uh, Judas. He makes his run at Simon Peter and the rest of the disciples. And now he makes his run at Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. His, his offensive is now being launched with full force. The hammer blow falls as Satan tries to tempt. And so, we got our own sinful desires. we got the world reinforcing what we naturally want to do. And you have Satan somehow, and I don't understand it, but mysteriously orchestrating, energizing, enticing, encouraging the whole process. He's the conductor, you know, conducting this whole symphony of temptation and sin. And so, why do we think we're going to possibly have any chance to stand against temptation? Which is why we have to pray. We have to get up in the morning and we have to say, God, I know today I'm going to get hit with A, B, and C because I always do. 
And then there's going to be other things coming. And then I have this thing happening today and I'm worried about that. And Lord, I need you to enable me to live a holy life. And we have to keep praying. If you are just caught in sin and you don't know how to break out of the pattern, you know, the first thing I'm going to ask you is, how much have you prayed? And really, how much time have you logged in prayer? Have you prayed the way Jesus is praying in this passage? Is there any prayer? Maybe you're like, I don't know. I don't really pray. I kind of give up. Well, there you go. You've got to pray. Maybe you need to fast. Fasting is a practice that Jesus used in the face of temptation. Uh, in, the, in the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days. The early church fasted regularly. It was a practice. That's a great discipline. When you really want to just get to the business of prayer, fasting is a great way to focus yourself. And it's amazing the power that God gives through fasting and, and prayer. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And so maybe that's what you need to do. Um, another thing I notice in this text, very interestingly, when it comes to praying against temptation, notice that this is a group activity. I didn't really notice that till later on in my study of this, but I was like, oh, this is a group thing. Look at verse 40, again, of chapter 22. He says, pray. Now, in Greek, that's a plural imperative. So it's not as if Jesus took the disciples to Gethsemane and he says, okay, you go over here. I want you to pray over here. And now you, come here. You go and pray against temptation over here. And now come over here. You pray against temptation. This isn't a private little spiritual battle. He's like, you guys get in a circle and pray. And so an important part of defeating temptation is we have to have other Christians praying with us. Being a Christian is not being an army of one. It's squad tactics. You have to have people covering you, backing you up. You have to be working as a team as Christians. It's a team sport. And I think one of the best ways that Satan keeps us from having victory in our Christian lives, especially as Americans, especially as New Englanders, is he keeps us isolated. And so we don't share what's going on in our lives. You know, there's a great way. If you want to get through church and be superficial, there's just two words you have to know. It goes like this. Fine yourself. Right? In fact, let's practice. Right. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I just want you to respond. Let's just work this out. Say, fine yourself. Okay, here we go. Let's just pretend. Hey, how you doing today? Fine yourself. Ah, good. Yeah. Can't complain. Yeah, the weather is great, isn't it? Huh? So how's your family? Oh, yeah, mine's fine. I'm doing good. You know, I was just thinking the other day, I I never ask people this, but, you know, we probably should be asking each other in church. I mean, how's your walk with the Lord going? Oh, oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. So, As long as you just keep repeating that, you'll be fine. And and no one will have to ever know what's really going on in here. Um, But if we really want to overcome temptation especially the difficult bosom sins that we all face, you've got to find one, two, three people with whom you can be real. And, you know, it doesn't mean you have to come and grab the microphone up here and pour out all your stuff in front of the whole church, but you've got to find a couple people you trust and say, you know, not fine. (laughs) Here's the problem. I'm really wrestling with X. Would you please pray for me this week? And it's as we do that as a body that we start really becoming a family and as a church and we get past the superficial and and we learn what it means to be a band of brothers. You know, soldiers who fight together in foxholes and who who work together, they know each other intimately. There's no secrets. And so if we're going to be soldiers together in this spiritual battle, we, we have to be able to open up our hearts to a couple other trusted Christians. 
And maybe some of us don't even know who that might be. And, and that's perhaps the first prayer. God, give me, a, give me a brother. Give me a sister that I can trust. A sister with a sister. A brother with a brother. And start praying together to overcome sin in our lives. And it's amazing when you pray the way God answers and gives victory. And it's not only a command that Jesus gives us. It's not just we have the inclusio at either end telling us to pray. But the juicy center in the middle of the story is that we have the example of Jesus on how to pray. He doesn't just give us a command, but then you know the, the drama in this story, the, the compelling heart of it is the picture of Jesus praying. And it's so amazing and it's so compelling. And so He shows us how to overcome temptation as he faces the greatest temptation himself at the, at the crucible of testing that just before his suffering is about to begin. Verse 47, the passion of the Christ begins. And so we are at the 11th hour. These are the final minutes. Judas is on his way with the soldiers. And here is the last temptation he faces. Will he go the final step and go to the cross or will he run away from his calling and his mission. So, verse 41, how does Jesus deal with this temptation? He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. He prayed. Father, if You are willing, take this cup from Me, yet not My will but Yours be done. Jesus prayed and He prayed and He prayed. He prayed when He was baptized. In Luke, he prayed when he picked his disciples. He prayed on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says in Luke chapter 5 that he often went to lonely places to pray. Where'd Jesus go? Oh, but he's off praying again. This is what he did. He was a prayer. And so that's how he stayed strong and faithful. Now this verse maybe troubles some of us and messes with our theology a little bit because we go, wait a minute. Why would Jesus be saying, if you're willing, take this cup from me? I mean, I thought He was God. I thought He was the Lord. I, I thought He was strong and divine. You know, why would He be praying like that? Well, yes, Jesus was God. But remember, He was also a man. In fact, our, our theology, the, the classic Orthodox Christian confession, is that Jesus is fully God, fully man. It's not like He was 50% God and 50% man. He was two natures in one person. Fully divine in nature and fully human. And you say, how was that possible? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> this is the mystery of God's power. I don't know how God became a man. It's one of the great, gracious mysteries that God has accomplished. But here He is. He's the God-man. And so if He is a human being, that means to be truly human, He has to experience the power of temptation in a, a really visceral way. And I, I don't understand that. But He does. And it's not, you know, he can't be like Superman, like, ha ha, your bullets can't hurt me. I'm super Jesus. You know, if he's really a man, as well as truly God, then that means he experiences temptation. And so it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Here we go, get this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we have, yet was without sin. So whatever temptation you are facing or have faced, Jesus has felt it too. Every temptation. He's tempted in every way. The difference is, unlike me, he passed the test. 
He passed the test. And so we have in Jesus this tempt- Him being tempted, really tempted. And what's the temptation that Jesus faced? And I think the temptation He faced was to turn aside from the divine plan. Notice verse 42. Father, if You are willing, take this cup from Me, yet not My will, but Yours be done. If the temptation was to pull the parachute, to jump out of the plane at the last second, and to not go through with the cross. Why? Was he afraid of the physical torment he was about to go through? I mean, as a human, he probably felt that. But I think there's something even more here. Notice this phrase. This is so key. Father, if you are not willing, take this cup from me. The the cup is an image of something you have to, to take and drink. And what's interesting is, this is so fascinating, in the Old Testament, when the image of a cup that God gives people is used, very often it is the cup of judgment and wrath against sin. And so God will have a nation that He's done with. He says, come here nation, I have my cup of judgment against you because of your sin. And it's like He grabs the nation by the shirt and makes them drink the cup, you know, and the wine's going down. And, like, oh. and then, the, you know, then the nation gets drunk. This is the language of the Old Testament. And He staggers and it falls and is destroyed. And so it's, it's this image of God's anger and judgment, His just holy judgment against sin. That's what I think Jesus is saying when He says, take this cup. What He doesn't want to experience naturally is the judgment of God. That when He's going to hang on that cross, that, that somehow Jesus who has been with the Father for eternity past, He who is very God of very God, and I don't understand this either, but will somehow be forsaken by the Father on the cross. That He will cry out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And the sky will turn black, which was a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament. And it's as if the God the Father will turn His back on the Son. And He'll be forsaken. And Jesus can see the full weight of God's wrath. And so He says, if there's another way, if there's another way, I'm open. But, bottom line, not my will, but yours be done. And that is what God calls us to, His will. He wants us to do His will. You know, we've been talking about the negative here today, resisting temptation. But there's a positive. The positive is to do God's will. The negative is to say no to sin, but the positive is to say yes to what it is that God wants us to do. And so Jesus knew that God had sent him to go to the cross. And now here is here he comes to the very crux of the moment. And now he must say yes to the Father's will once again and do what the Father says. And, and brothers and sisters, this is what God wants us to do. Not just to say no. See, Christianity isn't about saying no to a bunch of things. It's about saying yes to what God has for you. If you're a Christian, then you have a mission. It's like the Blues Brothers. I'm on a mission from God. <laughs> you're on a mission from God. You know, it's not like you become a Christian so you can come to church and be like, oh, that was great. You know, that was a great sermon. I like Jeremy when you waved your arms around. I like that. But wasn't, wasn't that funny when, like, we all stopped saying, you know, that was neat. And then we sang again, huh? You know, we don't come to church to be pew potatoes. We come to be gathered together to worship God and equipped so we can go back out on our mission. And every Christian has a mission. Every Christian is a missionary. And there's a place in America that that statistically is in most need of the Gospel. you know where that place is? The South Shore of Boston. 
we're in the most unreached, unchurched, least evangelized place in America. And we are called by God to go out of here and be missionaries. But if we don't have that missionary mindset and see that God wants to use us, then we're going to miss it. And so we have to be willing to do what God is calling us to do. Is there a task that God is calling you to take on? Is there a ministry that He's laid on your heart but you're afraid to do it? Um, Is God called you to maybe have a difficult conversation or a difficult phone call this week? Is the Lord uh, calling you to some step of faith and you're like, I don't know if I can do it, but God wants you to do it. You need to step out in faith. I uh, talked to a brother this week in our church and he was telling me uh, that the company he works for, he's one of the executives in the company, and the company had an ethical decision to make. And uh, if they did the right thing, it would cost them like an extra several hundred thousand dollars. And if they did the wrong thing and just let it slide, it wouldn't cost them (laughs) several hundred thousand dollars. And so the leadership of the company, he said, was like, well, I think we could just let this one pass. Let's not worry about it. But he's like, this is not right. This is not ethical. This is not honoring agreements. And so he stood up, the one lone voice against the whole leadership team, and he said, this is not right. And I know it's going to cost us several hundred thousand dollars to our company, but we have to do the right thing. And, and so he argued and against it and, and had conversations. And eventually, he swayed the whole board to come around to his position. And the president, he told me, later called him and said, I just want to thank you for being willing to stand firm for the gospel. I mean, for, uh, you know, for, for your convictions. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> it just comes out, gospel. I, I don't know what to say. I say gospel. Thank you for standing firm for your convictions. But this is what I was thinking. Because now imagine someday if this guy stands up and says, I'm a Christian. And he shares the gospel. Think how much credibility he now has. Ah, Oh, yeah, I know who you are. You're the guy who stands up for what's right. And so God calls us in difficult situations. And sometimes the things he calls us to do come out of the blue. And we have to stand up and do the hard thing for the Lord. You know, that's... uh, that's what I face every Sunday when I come to preach. I know that God has called me to this task and preaching is a joy, but I'll tell you, it's also a battle. And I'll tell you, one of the best things that I've seen instituted this year in our church, I wish I could take credit for it, but there's some, someone else who kind of started it. But this year we started having a prayer meeting at 8 a.m. on Sunday before the services. And so a little handful of us go down to my little garden of Gethsemane called the library downstairs And we sit around in a circle and we just pray for the service. By the way, that's an open meeting. Anyone wants to come at 8, you can come and pray. And we pray. That has been the best thing. to Before I go into the task of preaching and encouraging you to sit down and pray like the disciples and Jesus did and ask for His power. You know, a little prayer, a little power. More prayer, more power. Much prayer, much power. And so I want to see more prayer in our church, both individually but also corporately, which is uh, very important. So, uh, Jesus prays. And and he he fights back with prayer. And he knows how he prays, verse 44. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You know, he prayed and he's sweating. Have you ever been outside working in the yard and it's so hot and you're working so hard it's like your clothes are drenched? It's so gross. Or, or you've been just working or working out in the gym or something on the treadmill for 40 minutes and you're absolutely just wet with sweat. That's how Jesus prayed. 
He was fighting and wrestling. It was like Jacob wrestling with the angel. And he wouldn't let go until he had received his blessing. That's how we've got to pray. Not, you know, dear God, thank you for this day. And please bless our family. Amen. You know, which is a fine prayer, but I'm talking about some real prayer. Where we wrestle with God and we just put it out on the table with Him and say, God, I'm worried about this and I need this. And and sweat in prayer. Aerobic prayer is what we need. (laughs) I could sell an exercise video. (laughs) I'm not going to wear spandex though, so. (laughs) We need to pray like that. And, and, And so the Christian life, the way we grow is through prayer. You know, it's like this. Um, have you ever seen those, those hands-free cell phone devices where it's like a little earbud and it goes around the ear like this and then the microphone you're talking to is like this? So it's just like clipped on the side of your head. Have you seen those things? I don't know, people walk around the mall. They're like so important. They, they, it's like I'm so important and so busy that I have to be able to just go like, yeah, I'm here. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope none of you have one of those. I just... <laughs> That's how we have to pray. Get up in the morning. Talk to God. Clip it on. Okay? Turn it on. And here's the key. When you get up and you go to do your day, don't turn it off. And so you interact. You're hands-free. You're living your life. You're interacting with people. But the whole time, you just stay on with God. And so whenever you need to, you say, Lord, help me. I want to obey you. Lord, show me what to do here. Someone may be talking at you. Someone may be coming at you with something and you're like, oh, what am I going to say? And, you know, while they're going, you're praying. And you say, Lord, I want to honor you with how I respond to this person. I need to honor you with how I respond to this situation. I'm so tempted to just fire back at this person. Lord Jesus, help me to resist temptation. And you can be praying like that while they're coming at you. And so we just keep that little cell phone on all day and we stay close to God in prayer. <clears throat> because through prayer we find the power we need to resist temptation. And without God's help, we're not going to. So we need to become more serious about prayer. And here's the great thing. When you pray, what happens? When you ask God for the blessing of holiness, I'm not talking about the blessing of a BMW or the blessing of a, a second home in, you know, in the Berkshires. But when you pray for the blessing of obedience and holiness and spiritual strength in your life, God answers. He will answer that prayer. Verse 43, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. How much more so will the Father, Luke says in Luke 11, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And so we need to ask for the Holy Spirit's power to overcome these temptations in our lives. And we need to get other brothers and sisters praying on an extended basis with us. It may not take just one prayer. It may take a lot of prayer. It may take some months of prayer. But let's pray together and see God's victory in areas of our life of obedience to His will. And so Jesus prays He is victorious. He makes it through. He does not run away in fear. Verse 45, when He rose from prayer, there's the victory, He went back to His disciples and He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. 
Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Could you imagine if a friend called you in the middle of the night, like two in the morning? I mean, God forbid this should ever happen, but a friend calls you and, what is it? What are you doing? I just need you to pray for me. I'm on my way to the hospital. I just got news that my son or daughter was in an accident and they say that it's really touch and go. Do you want me to come to the hospital? No, no, just, just pray. Okay, and you hang up the phone and imagine going right to sleep. Of course you wouldn't. You would, you'd pray. You'd probably be crying. You'd be calling up other people. You'd probably just go to the hospital anyway, even though they told you not to. But you wouldn't go back to sleep. And yet, that's what we do with the Lord. He's calling us to pray for His kingdom. Here were the disciples at the most important moment. The whole history of salvation is now coming to fulfillment in the next few minutes. And the disciples are sleeping. All of God's plans from Genesis through Exodus and all of redemptive history leading up to Jesus are about to reach fulfillment. The cosmos and its future hangs in the balance. And they're sleeping when He asked them specifically to pray. And I just see myself so much like them. I'm sleeping when God is asking me to pray. Are you asleep? Am I asleep? The South Shore of Boston needs the Gospel. And we're the missionaries who are here to bring it. Are we asleep? Do I really pray for my neighborhood? Am I really praying for my friends? It's like, well, I never share the Gospel. Yeah, well, are you even praying? That's the first step. Maybe you feel intimidated by evangelism. Well, start praying. That's the first step. God, use me. Give me opportunities today. And don't be surprised if they happen. And speak into those situations and be there with the love of Christ. We want to see holiness in our church. We talk about revival. We pay lip service to it. But then we need to wake up and pray. Are we awake? Are we really ready for God to work in our midst? If we really want it, then we have to pray. We have to pray. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. And then I love the ending part. He says, get up and pray. So he doesn't just say, you're done. You know, at that point, I think Jesus should have just fired his disciples. Like three years, you guys still don't get it. You're sleeping right now, you're fired. I'm gonna get, I don't know where I'm going to get them. Eleven more, I'll find them, trust me. I mean, anyone will do. You guys don't get it. And I, I, sometimes I feel like that with me. I feel like Jesus should just fire me sometimes. I'm like, oh. You know, I'm, I'm so I'm so not everything I should be. But what does he say? Does he say, like, Trump, you're fired? No. He says, get up and pray. He gives them the same command. His forgiveness and his offer is still there. There is still time even now for us to wake up and to pray and to seek the Lord. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love You. We want to follow You, and yet we so easily identify with Your sleepy disciples. God, awaken us to prayer. Make me more of a man of prayer. Make us a praying church. Lord Jesus, we want to be a holy church. We don't want to just be a successful church.